I don't know if you remember Idi Amin. He used to be in the news many years ago, all the time. But the final news report about Idi Amin came in 2003. I'm going to read it to you. Idi Amin, aged 80, utterly ruthless former dictator of Uganda, has died in Saudi Arabia where he lived a life of luxury in exile with his several wives and 22 of his children. During an eight-year reign that plunged a prosperous nation into desperate poverty, the one-time military boxing champion used slaughter as a form of statecraft. The son of a peasant farmer and a mother who practiced sorcery, the nearly illiterate Amin joined the British colonial army in 1946. Nine years after Uganda achieved independence in 1962, he led a successful coup and then embarked on a murderous campaigns against political opponents and rival ethnic groups that left as many as half a million people dead. He also expelled tens of thousands of Asian traders, depriving Uganda of much of its business class. Amin was ousted at last in April 1979 after Tanzanian troops responded to a Ugandan invasion, entering the capital Kampala and forced him to flee. Where did he flee to? Well, he fled to Saudi Arabia, where he lived the last 24 years of his life in absolute luxury, surrounded by his wives and children who were with him when he died. He got away with it, murdering hundreds of thousands, half a million people dead, terrible pain and misery, destroying the economy. And, and it seems like there's no justice. He didn't get punished. He, he, he died peacefully in his sleep in a, in a lovely way. What is the meaning and purpose of life, especially when everyone ends up in exactly the same place in the grave? And no matter what you've done or what you've been or who you are and what you've amounted to, it all ends up exactly the same. That's the question that the book of Ecclesiastes asks again and again and again as we've gone through these last few weeks. We've seen it. Right from the start, there's that depressing statement that he makes. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He's been trying to come up with something that has meaning, that has, does give life purpose and meaning, and he's been unable to do it. And he asks the question right back in chapter 1 in order to help us work it out. What might give life meaning? He asks the question, what does a man gain from all his labour at which he toils under the sun? What's the bottom line? What's, what's it all add up to? What does it amount to? Under the sun, that phrase which, which comes up again and again through the book, under the sun, if you, if you just take God out of the picture, if you just look at this world as if this is all there is and, and there is no divine, there is no God, there's no nothing else, if we just look with our eyes and our common sense at life and the world and see what's happening, what would we see if we looked at it completely without God, if we were here just under the sun? And we saw that Solomon, who wrote the book, as he describes how he devoted himself to the kinds of pursuits that people, people right throughout history, the things that people have always done, have devoted themselves to to try and find lasting value. He, he tried pleasure. He tried great learning. He tried sex. He had a harem. 
Uh, he tried gardening and building great palaces and architecture. He tried uh, wisdom and work and, and then he tried money, all those things that people live for. And we saw how he tried to devote his life to each one of them and he really did invest in a way that we could never do uh, in, and he had it all and how none of them in the end worked. He says pleasure, in the end you can't hold on to it. You might have fun for a minute, but, but pleasure is like a, a cool stream of water. You try and pick it up in your hands and it just dribbles through your fingers. Or uh, wisdom, the, the wise man as well as the foolish man dies. And so what did he gain from being wise? You know, dying smart, dying dumb, you're still dead. Or, or work, work in the end. You remember he said it work just makes you stressed and and the money that you make and gets you all these different things, but you can't take them with you when you're gone and someone else is going to inherit them and they may waste it all. And on top of that, looking out on the world, you look around at the world and what do you see? You see suffering and pain. You see injustice in the world. People's lives filled with all kinds of envy and oppression and joylessness and pain. And so we saw his advice a couple of weeks ago. If you do want to enjoy things, well, don't think too much about it. Don't think too deeply. Certainly don't come to talks like this one. Don't think too much because if you do, if you think too hard, you'll have to come to the same conclusions that it's all pretty pointless and futile. Now, here's the good news. At the end of the book, he gives an answer which, which changes everything. Having invested himself in all this stuff and all these activities, there is, in the last few sentences, an epilogue which, which turns the whole book upside down. That there is meaning and purpose. It's not just a feeling that we have that there should be. There really is. In fact, by the end of this talk, you might feel that life's got a bit too much meaning and purpose you might say, well, I'd like some meaning and something to live for, but I don't want life to matter that much. But it does. So let's have a look at what Solomon worked out in terms of bringing ultimate meaning. His epilogue, you may have noticed that last bit of the book, moves from the first person to the third person. It's no longer I saw this and I thought that, but it's he saw this and he said that. Now, it might be that it's someone else who's writing an ending to the book and kind of filling in the otherwise depressing book that his forebear uh, wrote and kind of make a happy ending. But I'm persuaded it's actually Solomon or the person writing through Solomon's eyes who wrote the book who's trying to be modest as he talks about how important the words of the wise are. Because it's going to sound a bit self-aggrandizing if he is talking about himself. But I think that because it's such an integral part to the book. The book wouldn't make any sense without this ending. None of it makes any sense without this bit that finishes it off. So what does he say? Well, he says there in verse 9 in the final chapter, In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. What he's saying is he's put a whole lot of time and thought into it, lots of soul searching in order to say it just right so that we could get the point. And he's carefully crafted this book so we can follow it right through to its logical conclusions. But then he goes on to talk about the words of the wise. He says in verse 11, the sayings of the wise are like cattle prods and 
Those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. Now, a cattle prod is not a particularly complicated piece of machinery. Even the model ones that have electricity in them, like a taser, they're not particularly complicated. But he's talking about the old-fashioned kind of ones, the the goads, the long stick with a pointy end, uh, particularly good for occasions when your ox is out ploughing the field, but it won't budge, it won't go anywhere. And so what you do is you take the pointy end and you jab it in the ribs and you poke the ox to get him to move. And that's what he's saying the words of the wise are like. They are goads. They're there to get us motivated and moving, to jab us and, and sometimes to make us very, very uncomfortable. And, and what he says is that uh, the wise sages of this world are really only understudies to the one true shepherd, God from whom ultimately comes everything that is beautiful and wise and truthful and and who alone brings meaning, as he's going to go on to say. And so they're the words of Solomon, yes, but they're really the words of God himself, the one great shepherd. This is God's words to the world. And so we need to, because they're the words from God, take them very seriously. And so he says in verse 12, But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books and much study wearies the body. In Australia, the book industry, uh, we spend over a billion dollars on books each year and, and books just keep churning out. The internet coming along and the rise of YouTube and Google hasn't stopped books being printed and they keep churning out. And what you've got to do is buy books now in order to understand how to use the internet and YouTube and how to use the web the paperless society, as far as I can tell, has more paper now than it ever has before. Of the making of books, there is no end. But I don't think that's what he's getting at. And I don't think he's trying to encourage weary HSC students uh, to get on when studies wear him. What he's saying is, if you're in looking for meaning and purpose in life, you could study and read and listen forever. There'll always be another book on the subject to read. There'll be another guru to listen to. There'll be another podcast to hear. There's another thing to try. But he's also saying that there has to be a time when you've got to say to yourself, I've read enough. I know enough. There are decisions that have to be made. The truth is there and it's plain to see and I'm going to have to face reality. Why do I say that? Because he goes on immediately to tell us what the truth is, what, what the answer is that he's been building up to for the whole book. He says in verse 13, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. You ready for it? The conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity or some of the other translations. This is the whole duty of mankind. It's for everyone. It's, it's what all of life is about and it's what everyone's life should be about. And fearing God and keeping his commands. He's no longer talking under the sun. What he's saying is that God has spoken to us. God has revealed himself. And, and there's a right way to respond to that fact. In fact, there are two right responses 
to fear God, that's the first one, which is more than saying just take God a bit more seriously or, or God, give God some serious thought. No, fear God at, at, at the very least. At the very least, that means falling down on your knees before him in awesome respect or struck respect even, knowing that he is so far greater than us, that he is the creator. And no wonder, because when you understand how great God is, that he is the maker, that he sustains this world, and when you understand how pure he is, when you understand how, how much he hates wrong, he hates evil, that the, the proper reaction is to fear him. Even within Christian circles today, I fear that, that we're losing, uh, losing this sense of fear. We, we can be pretty weak on the fact. We've kind of turned God from the one we fear to someone who we wouldn't mind going out with. Uh, he'd make a really good boyfriend or girlfriend, someone we'd like to have coffee with and have a chat, our BFF. That is not God, though. Uh, God is infinite. And yes, he is a friend to us. But he's not like my best mate who we go fishing with and have a laugh and kind of talk about the good times. He, he is infinite and he holds our lives in his hands. It is right to fear him. But not only to fear him, but we're to keep his commands, we're told here. We're to do what he says. We're to live in obedience to him. And Solomon says that's, that's actually the whole reason that we have been made. That's why he put us here. All of us, this is for all humanity. Uh, you know, it's the whole duty of mankind. It's, it's everyone's duty. We exist to fear God and to keep his commandments. And the great irony is that if we're obedient to God, that we, we actually start to find true freedom. It's not the slavery that we're worried about. It's, it's actually freeing. And in fact, we have become slaves by trying to throw off his control. As we live for God, we start to find our true purpose and the meaning of life. But you might be sitting there with that little voice inside your head saying, hang on, wait a sec, that doesn't sound right. I, uh, who, who is he to tell me how to live? I, I, I think I know my life and what I need better than he ever would. I, I don't want to obey anyone else. Obey is such a nasty, okay word from kind of yesteryear. We're kind of done with obedience. <laughs> yep, well, the Bible has a term for that. It has a word for, for that attitude. The word the Bible uses is sin. Sin. Uh, sin is, is, is walking away from God. It's, it's saying to him, I'm going to run my life, not you. you know, I don't trust you to do it. And, and it shows itself in all kinds of different ways. From the, from the angry atheist ranting with his puny fist, shaking at God, saying, I don't believe you exist. Uh, right through to the, uh, the, the placid agnostic who, who, who just thinks, well, well, God may be there, but uh, I don't need to worry about it. And I think I'll just do my own thing because I don't care. Right, right through to the religious person who, who wants God, but only wants God on, on their own terms. 
Uh, and, and right through to the spiritual person who wants an experience of the divine and wants to feel something inside, but, but only have a feeling that makes them feel good and affirms them in their lifestyle and actions and choices that they've, they've already decided. That is what the Bible means by sin. It's all sin. And the great irony is that freedom, life, purpose and meaning are found in obeying God. Take God out of the picture and it's all vapor. It's all empty. It's all meaningless. Like the breath that comes out of our mouth on a cold winter morning. It's there and it's gone. And he goes on in the last verse of the book to explain why it is that our lives matter so much. Why they have so much meaning if God is there and in the picture. I remember being back at uni in the early 90s studying engineering and uh, it, it, was, it was an interesting time. But pretty regularly the lecturers would come in and they would start talking about something that you'd it was obviously a hobby horse, something that they'd been working on or something from their studies, a project that they, they, they really were into. And then someone would put up their hand and ask, uh, Professor, is this in the exam? My wife, Alison's a school teacher, high school teacher, and she has pretty much the same experience. You know, every class, someone asks, is this in the exam, miss? Now, you remember asking that? You remember other people asking that in class? And the teacher says no, and what happens? All of a sudden, everyone tunes out. Well, why are we learning it if it's not in the exam? Everyone stops listening. That To the lecturer or the teacher, it's something fascinating and interesting that'll blow your mind and change your life and change the way you think about the world. But what's everyone else worked out? If it's not in the exam, we don't need to know it. If it's not examinable, then it doesn't count. Ecclesiastes says, life is examinable. That's why it matters. That is why there's purpose. And so verse 14, the final sentence of the book, for God will bring every act to judgment including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. From cover to cover, the Bible speaks about the fact that God one day is going to judge us. He will. He'll judge every obvious thing, but also every hidden thing, we're told. God will judge us by our actions, but he'll also judge us by our motives by our hearts, by what's going on in here. He, he knows everything about us. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He knows us intimately. He is God after all. Our words and our lies and even the secrets deep down that no one else knows, he, he knows them all too well. And all of a sudden life matters because there will be a reckoning. Idiar men will stand before God's judgment seat and face the consequences. And you and I will stand before God's judgment seat. And the Bible goes on to speak about eternity. and That is, it's not just this world and, and that's it. There's, there's something afterwards. And I've got to be honest with you, uh, it's, 
It's, it, the Bible talks about heaven and about hell as being real places. They're not just kind of mythological things or things to scare children or things to, you know, so that we can kind of get through death, you know, as we face grief. Now, again and again, the Bible says that heaven and hell are real places and, and we'll spend eternity in one or in the other. But, but they're more than just places. They're, they're, there's what they're about. They're, there's joy in heaven. There's joy as, as we, we're there knowing God and, and being with him face to face and enjoying him and enjoying all the blessings of being his and Yet God is good. He, he made a great world this time, but it's going to be even better in the next age. Whereas hell, that's, that's about being without God. It's about existing without him and existing in fear and in bitterness and regret and anger. And, and the Bible's clear that they are the two great alternatives, heaven and hell. Now, is that good news or is it bad news? Well, I want to say it's both. It's good news and bad news. It's good news in that all of a sudden life matters. There is meaning and purpose. There is, there is uh, something to weigh up what we do. It, and, and things go beyond the grave. Death is not the end. That thing that has made everything else meaningless in Solomon's pursuits, there's more to it and there's a point to it. But the bad news is that I know inside me that I don't live up to my own moral standards, let alone God's. My conscience condemns me as uh, I think about Judgment Day. I've got to be honest with you. I, I won't measure up of my own accord. I, I can't measure up. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. But that is the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've just been along for the last few weeks uh, and not been to church before and you've kept coming back, I expect it's because you've been impressed by this book. It's as if it was written yesterday, not 3,000 years ago. Here is something written so in the ancient world that, uh, that, that makes sense of our world and of life and of what people are like and what they put their lives and their time into. It, it, it makes sense of human nature and, and particularly why it is that we feel this turmoil within us. He's got his finger right on the pulse of humans and of our world. Now, there was one particular woman in the Old Testament who was recorded as being particularly impressed with Solomon and his wisdom. She was the queen of a place called Sheba. Sheba is kind of where modern-day Saudi Arabia is. She's otherwise known in the book as the Queen of the South because it's south of Israel. Uh, she lived around 1000 BC, about the same time as Solomon, and she'd heard rumours of his greatness and his wisdom, and she travelled 2,000 kilometres by camel to meet with this man with all of her contingent, her retinue in tow behind her. You can read about her in 1 Kings and chapter 10. Here, I'll read the first bit. The Queen of Sheba heard about Solomon's fame, connected with the name of the Lord, that is connected with the name of God, and came to test him with difficult questions. 
she had issues. She wanted to know if God was real or what he would say and how he operates. And, and she, she thought Solomon, his wisdom, would be able to answer. And she, if there is someone who is wise, she's going to go and test him because she wants to know. So she came all that way by camel with her questions. And, and he answers her hard questions. She, she's astounded and, and she becomes a believer in the God of Israel, this, this pagan queen. With all her riches and splendor, she becomes a follower of God. Now, what's that got to do with us? Well, here's a woman who only had the wisdom of Solomon to go by, who traveled and listened to him and believed him. A thousand years later, Jesus comes along, he stands up and he teaches something about the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, and something about Solomon and ultimately something about us and how we relate. And as he's speaking here, he's speaking to the generation who, who were with him at the time, uh, who heard him teach, they, they'd seen all the miracles that he was able to do, the healing the sick, the casting out the demons, all the things that you can read about in the Gospels, their, their historical fact. And yet the crowds were ignoring him and they were hassling him. They were making false accusations against him. And, and well, you can read all about that as well. But Jesus responds to them in Luke chapter 11 and in verse 31. And he says this. He says, the queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, she'll rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and she will condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look, something greater than Solomon is now here. Who's greater than Solomon? What's greater than Solomon? Well, Jesus is talking about himself. Now, how is it that Jesus is greater than even the greatest, wisest king in, in Israel's history? How can Jesus be greater than Solomon? Well, he's greater than him in all sorts of ways. We won't go into all of them. But let me just focus on two ways. Firstly, Solomon talked about the fact that one day God will judge. Jesus comes along and he teaches that he is the one who is going to execute that judgment. He is the judge sitting on God's throne executing the judgment. Jesus is God's judge for each and every one of us. That makes him greater than Solomon. He tells us himself. The rest of the New Testament also teaches it. But what we're told throughout the New Testament is that he will judge people on the basis of how they've responded to him, what they have done with him, whether we feared him and obeyed him and, and how we've treated other people as a result of how we've responded to him. How have we responded to Jesus? But, but that's just the problem, isn't it? I'll be judged by him and you know what? On that account, I'm going to fail as well because I know again that I don't measure up. Jesus is greater than Solomon in that he's the judge, but he's also greater than Solomon, much greater than Solomon because he's also the one who has come to rescue us from that judgment, to save us from our sin, to save us from our greatest problem. Jesus the judge, but also Jesus the saviour. Solomon could point out the issues. He could give us meaning and purpose in the end when you bring God into the picture, but only Jesus can do something about the real issue, about the real problem. 
And, and how he saves is at great cost to himself. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says this. He says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what a ransom is? It's the idea of paying a price to, to win someone back. Right? Someone's been kidnapped. You pay a ransom in order to, to bring them home. You, you sell property to the pawn shop for some easy cash. You can redeem it. You can ransom it if you go and pay back the money with interest in order to get it back. We have walked away from God. We've disobeyed him. We, we deserve to be punished. But when you walk away from the source of life, well, what is the result? The result is death. And Jesus came in order to give his life as the ransom in order that we be forgiven and brought back for God. He died on the cross to take away my guilt, to take away your guilt. He did it there on the cross so that we can turn to him and be forgiven, so that we can receive mercy from him, so that we can make it through the judgment day, not on the basis of our own merits, which that's not going to happen, right? It's only going to be bad news for us, but he did it so that we could have the joy, the forgiveness, the mercy and the home in heaven with him as Lord forever. What a great thing. It's as if the judge in the court case hands down the verdict, issues the sentence, but then comes down from the bench and says to the officer, take me, I will pay it instead of you, instead of me. What a wonderful mercy. Justice done, but paid by someone else in our place. If you can imagine uh, with me a, a giant magnifying glass. You remember magnifying glasses? Uh, they were things that uh, entertained us back at school that the science teacher taught us about. And at first we're told that they're there to make things look bigger and kind of, woo, you know, kind of look through them and you know, these tiny little insects are now look enormous. But you work out pretty quickly what they're really for, right? They're there to burn things, burn paper and maybe your sister and little animals. But anyway, I don't know if we ever did that. Well, the cross works like a, a giant magnifying glass in that way. But instead of concentrating light down onto one point, it's as if God concentrates down all of the sin of the world, all of our rebellion, all of our walking away from him, all of our not living from him. He concentrates it down onto just one point, onto just one man, Jesus. And he burns there under the wrath of God for the sin of humanity. And so as he dies there on the cross, he takes the punishment that you and I all deserve for having walked away from God. And he, and he deals with it once and for all. It is done. He has paid for us. And he lives again. He came out of the tomb on the third day. He has lived again. He has triumphed over the cross. You can know it's true. You can know that there is life afterwards because here is the man who died, who now lives, who has made promises, who told us that it would happen and has gone ahead of us. Jesus the judge, Jesus the saviour. And the way to be right with God and to know that the way through the judgment is sure and that your eternity will be with God for certain is by, by trusting Jesus, by trusting what he has done. 
by acknowledging the truth of it. But not only just intellectually kind of assenting to it, but trust him, trust that his death has paid for us. Trust that he is alive now and trust that he will bring us home, that he's good for his word, he's good for his promises. That's what God wants fundamentally, us to trust him. Solomon says, fear God and obey his commandments. That's our duty. It's the whole duty of mankind. What does God command us to do? Trust my son. This is my son whom I love. He says on a couple of occasions, trust him. Trust his son for life. Trust his son for forgiveness. And trust his son is is the only way to life. Give yourself to him. Well, there's Ecclesiastes and, and some of the rest of what Jesus taught and did for us. That kind of reflects on the same issues that Solomon raised for us. Now, some of you already know that it's true. In fact, you've committed your life already to Jesus. You have trusted him and you know the joy, you know the forgiveness and you know the meaning and the purpose that comes now from, from having worked out what life really is all about and who is at the centre of it. And, and, and you've got the freedom that, that Jesus has paid for and you love it and it's a wonderful thing. And, and you know it's only going to get better from here on because you're in this relationship with God that's just growing and it's going to go into eternity and it can't be taken away from you because God has made his promises. Right? You're with him and that's wonderful. But there'll be some of you who, who perhaps need more information. You're excited and, and want to know if it's true that, that Jesus really came, that he, did he, how does his death work? Could it really be that good? Did he conquer the death? Did he come out of the grave? I'm, I know you're telling me that's true and that's what the Bible says, but how do we know we can trust it? Maybe you've got other questions about Christianity or about what I've been talking about. Um, that's okay. It, it, it's really vitally important that you know things are absolutely true before you commit yourself to them. That's just being sensible, right? We're not being called by God to live by blind faith or to, to believe in myths. Um, but I do want to say that if that is you and you do have these questions and these kind of anxieties about it, that you work it out. Okay, don't, don't just leave it on the back burner. That would be the most foolish thing to do. We are talking about matters of eternal significance. We're talking about things that will turn your life upside down and really reorient you in, in this meaning and purpose. And, um, and, and you do need to establish whether they're right or wrong, these claims that the Bible's making that I've made today. Um, and, and so work through them. Maybe you've got a Christian friend who you can talk things through with and ask you questions. Uh, if you want, you can always contact us here at St Barnabas Anglican Church at Ingleburn from our website uh, or follow uh, the links uh, on our Facebook page. Um, and, and we'd only be too glad to, to meet up in person if you're local or to send you through some information, some things to, to answer your questions or point you in the right directions. Or at the moment, we're, we're currently doing a series on YouTube uh, at the moment on our, our YouTube channel uh, where we're working through the big questions of Christianity about what is a Christian and what is the gospel and, and explaining this in a bit more detail. And maybe that's something you, you can look into. But maybe you're at a place where the pennies just dropped or it's already dropped. You've not done anything about it, but 
But it all has made sense now. You can see that it's true. You, you know that you need God's forgiveness. You know you need saving. You, and, and you get it that, that Jesus has died for you, that he, he really has done it. He has paid and, and that he will forgive. He does forgive. And, and you, you know he's calling you to come to him in trust. And I want to say if that's you, then uh, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to him right now in faith and trust. I'm going to pray a prayer in just a moment's time. Uh, the words aren't magic. It's not that, you know, you say this formula and poof, everything uh, is sorted out because they're just exactly the right words that God needed to hear and you twisted his arm. No, prayer, prayer is about talking to God. It's a relationship, right? And, and I'm going to read you the prayer first so that you can understand what I'm going to pray beforehand. And, and then you can work out if it's a prayer for you to pray with me in just a couple of moments' time. So let's have a look at it. It says this. It'll come up on the screen. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. That is just acknowledging where we stand before God already. But it goes on. Thank you for setting your son to die for me that I might be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. That's just acknowledging the facts of what God's done in history in order to bring you his love and mercy and forgiveness. But then the punchline's at the bottom. Please forgive me and change me that I might live with Jesus as my ruler. Well, that's the prayer. We'll leave it on the screen and I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray that with me. You might just like to pray in the silence of your own heart. Uh, maybe you want to pray it out loud uh, as we go together. God promises to hear us. He promises to answer this one. And so I'm just going to go sentence by sentence real slow so we can pray it together. Dear God, I know that I'm not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I'm guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I might be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.